0: Before you start listening to this podcast, we've got a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, which will give you full access to everything on our website, and we'll also throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer.
1: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, And this week we are honouring the number 42, the answer, as all fans of Douglas Adams will know, to the big question of life, the universe and everything. It is the 42nd anniversary, believe it or not, of the first radio performance of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And this week I'm very pleased to be joined by two people. First, Adam Roberts, who's a science fiction writer, a professor of literature and a self-declared Hitchhiker's superfan. And John Lloyd, who, as well as being the founder of QI, has been a pivotal figure in almost everything that's been funny in the last three or four decades, and who also knew Douglas Adams very well. Welcome both. Adam, I'd like to start by coming to you. What was it that, to go back to that first sort of encounter with hitchhikers, I mean, was it completely out of the blue? Was he doing something that nobody had
2: done before? I, I think so. I mean, I'm a little startled to think it was 42 years ago. And that would make me very old. That can't be right, surely. And I do remember listening to the radio series. I actually had to stay up late. They were broadcast quite late. I recorded them on C90 cassettes and listened to them back over and over. I may be getting myself into trouble with the BBC over copyright issues by confessing that. I know Douglas Adams came in part out of Doctor Who fandom and Doctor Who writing. And there was something of... Doctor Who's sprightliness of, of wit and invention in the show. But I don't think there's ever been a, a text, a work like The Hitchhikers that was just so richly funny, that was so profound and hilarious at the same time. Not in science fiction. I'm not sure in any forum, actually.
1: John, you actually wrote some of the first series of of Hitchhikers. Can you talk a bit about your... I mean, you knew Douglas very well from, as it were, before he was famous. I mean, what was yeah. your
0: friendship like? How did you well, know him? We were absolute best friends. We were at Cambridge together, but we didn't know each other very well. We went to occasionally the same parties. But he basically ran the review group at St John's and I ran the one at Trinity because Footlights in those days was considered, you know, pretty naff and old-fashioned. <laughs> and And so college review was the thing. And when we came down, we started hanging out together and going out for... Hamburgers and, and, and drinking too much and we became very very close and we both were science fiction nuts and we used to write together I was a radio producer and Douglas was a freelance writer and we used to hang out in the evenings and write stuff and we wrote a treatment for the Guinness Book of Records as a movie which is a science fiction thing we wrote a sitcom uh, one for the astrophysicist called Snow 7 and the White Dwarves about two astronomers sharing a an observatory on the top of Everest. All these things came to nothing. And Douglas used to hang out with the pythons and he wrote a pilot with Graham Chapman called Out of the Trees. But he was struggling, frankly. And I was, meantime, producing Just a Minute and the news quiz and things on Radio 4. And we shared a house together in... uh, Well, initially a flat in Greencroft Gardens then a house together in Roehampton. And it was in Roehampton where Douglas had It was a furnished house and for some reason had seven wardrobes in in his room, six of which were locked. We never find out what was in them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And we shared a house with uh, my girlfriend, Helen, and a guy called Gibson, who was a guitarist, good name for a guitarist, American guy. Uh, One day we came home from, probably from the pub, actually, and Gibson had sawn down the front hedge because he thought it looked untidy. It was a strange living Anyway, Douglas was struggling as a writer and one day I came back from work and I found him in his bedroom with the seven wardrobes sitting on his bed crying and he said, I can't stand it, Johnny, I can't do it anymore. I'm going to give up and become a shipbroker in Hong Kong, which is something that Geoffrey Perkins, the producer of the first series of Hitchhiker, had, had, had been before he was a radio producer and, you know, gave him a hug and said, I'm really sorry, but, you know... Never mind, and then the next week he got the commission for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, based off on, on the title alone, really, and he was off. And so he always found writing terribly difficult, Douglas. Everything was an agony, and after four episodes he got stuck. And he said, Johnny, can you help me out, because I've run out of ideas. So I said, of course.
1: How far had he got in the story at this time? He day? got
0: four, four episodes in, four and a half, I think, so it was halfway through episode five. So I mean, where where were we at this stage? Have we found Well like Adam will tell or? tell us exactly from his <laughs> C ninety experience, but I can't remember exactly. But it was before we came up with the idea of forty two being the answer to life, the universe, and everything. I remember I remember being in the room when that funny. It was his idea, and trying to think what was the number. That it would be the answer to life, the <laughs> number everything. So in mean, fifty-six, so no. the other
1: ones auditioned
0: then. No, forty-two, and then to Douglas always used to say, "Why? Because it's the funniest of the two-figure numbers." Which is, you know, as typical. Douglas, out of a blue sky, comes this mad idea that becomes, you know, it's iconic, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 in the vernacular,
2: and it's iconic because it's it's kind of right. There is something just funny about forty-two. There's something funny about the setup. And that being the answer.
1: Yes, and then, then uh, did he know at that stage that the second part was going to be what's the question?
0: Well, I don't know. This is the thing, what's so fascinating about Douglas, because he was a kind of a genius because the hallmark of genius is you don't know where it comes from. I mean, I say as someone who worked a lot with Rowan Atkinson, it's the same thing. I've never seen Rowan actually do any work. Same with Peter Cook. I never saw Peter Cook pick up a pencil. It just used to pump out of him. Douglas is the same. So who would, the lateral, it's not lateral, it's inverted thinking, isn't it? You've got the answer, but what's the question? I mean, it's it's, it's just marvellous. And, and the thing is, I often feel sad, as we all do, that Douglas isn't with us, because I think by now he'd have worked out what the question was. There's a great story, Adam, I don't know if you know this story. Just after Douglas died, I was talking to Richard Curtis about this, and... He'd said that the previous year he'd been to have lunch with Douglas and they they were walking towards the restaurant. And Richard said, how are you, Douglas? And Douglas said, well, I, I'm so slightly, you know, sort of taken aback because um, I think I've actually discovered what the meaning of everything is. And Richard sort of a, sort some of slightly lurching feeling. He thought, well, I can either asked Douglas, well, what is the meaning, Douglas? And that will ruin lunch, instead of a jolly lunch with lots of jokes and gossip and all that kind of thing. We'll have this long scientific explanation of exactly the physics of everything. He said, I could either ask that, or I could just say, and how's Jane? And he took the decision to say, and how's Jane? And Doug said, oh, you know, she's fine, I suppose, but anyway, never mind about that. And they had a very jolly lunch with lots of gossip and jokes, and then Douglas died. And Richard thought, if only I'd asked the question, I would be the only person in the universe who knows what the meaning is.
1: Ah, well, that's a
0: tragic, tragic
1: moment. But that, there is a philosophical sort of strand, lightly worn. in it. I mean, how seriously, Adam, do you think, you know, as a scholar of literature, the philosophy in the book wants to be taken?
2: Oh, I, th- I think it's, it's genuinely deeply thought and I think one of the things that makes Douglas Adams such a genius is that he's interested in in comedy he's interested in laughter for its profundity for the way that it gets at something that more serious modes of inquiry will tend to miss again so I was a teenager I suppose when this was broadcast and there's a danger I suppose that a teenager will see you know, profoundness in, in what are just throwaway science fiction tropes. But the idea that at the end of the second series, they discover who the, the ruler of the universe is, and it's just some nameless guy living in a shed yeah. somewhere. The, the way that the phenomenology is, is worked through, the, the games with appearances versus reality, the whole quest for meaning, sending up the idea, that which is, I suppose, what a philosopher does. And metaphysics is about the search for one or other meanings. Religion is the same thing. The joy of Hitchhikers is that it, it as uh, John Fraser is exactly the right one, it, it provides you with a kind of inverted thinking about that very question. What if meaning is is just, it's hilarious, actually. What, is, what do you get if you multiply six by nine, 42? <laughs>
1: John, you worked on the radio programme. It's got, you know, it has these different avatars, doesn't it? There's, There's, you know, the paperback book was actually how I first encountered it. I think I was a bit young for the to catch the radio thing do, do you think there's a sort of either a platonic form of hitchhikers which is one of those you know the radio it's probably not the film adaptations but the radio or the book i mean how do these things relate together do you think
0: well it's difficult when you're inside it because i tried several times have another go at it and it I, I'm just instantly transported back to the 70s and who I was then and what we were like and how it was not a work of genius. It was just two blokes struggling to think of another joke, you know. But it's not true of people who are now 17 who come upon it as a kind of almost like a religious text because every line seems extraordinary. I, I personally think the first two books are will will never go away. They've got a, they've got a sort of catcher in the rye quality to them with all their you know, sort of richness and simplicity all at once.
2: It's generous for you to say that, actually. Didn't he write out your contributions that you'd put into the original radio scripts when he novelised?
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, you know, the first big tragedy in my life when... Uh, I'm sorry I'm...
2: to touch on a sensitive No, statement. no, it's OK,
0: because I have this thing, Adam, that one of my mantras I live by is disaster as a gift, is that if you can only see... You know, the the trick of life is to realise the things that go wrong in 20 years' time you will see as the great mercy. And you have to try and shorten the time between the disaster and realising that it isn't a disaster after all. It took me about three years to get over that. But, you no, know, he, he gave me the sack, and we, we had adjacent radio offices in those days. And a letter came round the party wall saying, I think it would be better if I did this on my own in future. I, I said, why? He said, well, you know because I think it's better what I write on my own, even though it's harder. And of course, I didn't agree. But, and at the time, it was a horrible shock when your best friend gives you the boot, especially as you think you're going to escape from producing just a minute and go on to become a Hollywood mogul or something. But it's, it's I'm, I've nothing but gratitude for it because, because Douglas giving me the boot meant I went and do everything else, whereas I would have always been who's that guy who writes Hitchhiker with Douglas Adams? You know, I don't know if you know the book we wrote together, The Meaning of Life, about three years later. So that was a little book that could fit in the top breast pocket of a suit. And I've often been in meetings over the years where people say, do you know a book called The Meaning of Life?" And I go, yes. And I said, I sort of wrote it, and they pull it out of their top pocket, this dog-eared copy, you know, 30 years old. And they go, my God! Your name's on the front cover, and they haven't noticed. And that was how huge Douglas was and is. I mean, he was a huge man and a huge personality and a huge reputation, and deservedly so, and the rest of us are sort of minnows in his wake, really. That's a bit of a mixed metaphor. Did Liff
1: sort of mend your friendship?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's never quite the same, you know, but we never... We got over it really quickly. It was uh, probably six months because we booked a holiday together in in Corfu to write the book. And, of course, we weren't co-writing it then, so Douglas sat on the terrace of this little villa we had in in the wrong end of Corfu, the northeast northwest corner, where there was one taverna, a church and a beach full of seaweed, and he had a big hat and a typewriter, and he would be the novelist, and it would last about two and a half hours till about 11.30 when he'd think, oh, I can't do this. And he'd come down to the tavern by, where I was usually half half plastered mid-morning. And that's where The Meaning of Lift came from because he used to play this game. He'd said, we played this game at school where his English teacher used to say in a, in a sort of slack period, what's an epping? You know, what do you think a heckman wike is? That kind of stuff. And we used to play this game and that's where the book came from, so... It was really quick to to mend the friendship, but it was always slightly wary afterwards, I suppose. And as a collaborator,
1: was he someone... Obviously, he was quite determined when he decided what he was doing was better, you know, this is my way or the highway. But did you, you know, when you were doing Hitchhikers together, was it a sort of like, this would be funny if this happened next? And, I mean, was he sort of yeah you know thumbs up thumbs down to suggestions or was it I mean how did the collaboration work well I've, I've, I've collaborated there?
0: with a lot of really quite well-known people Peter Cook and I used to work together towards the end of his life and it's a very similar relationship which is you you've got the genius which is Douglas Peter Cook and I'm the sort of comedy cleaning lady you know I do the tidying up and you know when they go off and they've they've opined and given their and you tidied up put the punchline on you know put the thing in a grammatical shape i'm quite good at that and it's a very similar relationship that cleese had with chapman is you know cleese is like me is very logical you know this doesn't quite work exactly and and chapman was a nutcase a delightful nutcase usually plastered on gin and for example the parrot sketch John Cleese's idea for the sketch was it was a man trying to return a broken toaster to a shop. And Graham Chapman said, that is ridiculous. It should be a dead parrot. And Cleese, of course, goes, marvellous. That's much better. And it was that kind of relationship. It was very easy, Douglas and I. We had a lot of fun. It was very quick. There wasn't any arguing. There was no ego. It's just the fit, you know. The chemistry was very good, so one person's tidy and logical and the other is, you know, messy and incredibly creative. And the fit, the the sum is great in the parts, and that was what the Snow 7 and the White Dwarves is about, is that the two astronomers sharing this tiny observatory, one of whom is very tidy and the other who is very untidy. We know he agonised over
1: writing. There's that famous quote about saying, you know, I love deadlines, I like the whooshing noise they make as they go past. He agonised, but there's also... You know, as you read something like Hitchhiker, it, it feels quite a lot like he's making it up as he goes along. I mean, was he a sort of... I mean, he was agonising over making it up as it goes along rather than planning. I mean, is it, was he improvisational in the way he kind of approached stuff?
0: Well, it, it's... I read years ago on a plane that Handel had written The Messiah in 23 Days, and I got very, very depressed by that. The, the thing is, not done, not done anything in 23 days ever. But of course he didn't really write it in 23 days. He wrote it in 15 years and then it all came out when he actually written it down. That's the way Douglas used to operate. He would spend, if he had a deadline a year away, he'd spend the first nine you know, nine and a half months agonising over the first paragraph or the first page and not getting it right, never being satisfied. And then fear, terror would come in and he'd write the whole lot in one go. So it it was sort of, you know, the subconscious had done it all for him, like he slept on it for nearly a year, and they all come out in a flurry. He famously finished one book on a plane to Singapore, I think. He wrote more or less the whole book on the, on the flight. And the really good story is Sonny Mehta, his publisher at Pan, got absolutely fed up with one book not being delivered on time. So he turned up to his house at 8 o'clock in the morning and said, get in the car, Douglas. And Douglas said, what? You know, pack some socks and a pair of pants, get in my car. And drove him down to a remote hotel in Devon where they had a suite, two bedrooms and a room in the middle. And every morning, Sonny would knock on Douglas' <laughs> bedroom door, sit there, get writing. And that's how he wrote the book. So it was, it was like, it's such an odd thing that he was crazy to fire me because I made it easy for him. Because the things that he didn't like doing, I liked doing. And the things I couldn't do, he did. But he wanted, you know, he, he was determined to suffer for it, and he did. I think, it, I think it was very hard, the last bit of his life, especially trying to get the movie made, which took 20 years, and wasn't made until after he died. Do you
1: think he? his... It's a question, really, for both of you. I mean, John, you said you thought the first two books are kind of immortal. Adam, I don't know where you're, you stand on that, but do you think his gift... You know, he was returning to Hitchhiker. Do you think his gift slacked off? Do you think his... his ability to write changed over the years i mean does dirk gently stand up as well as douglas douglas's earlier work adam maybe start start with you
2: well i i think one of the (laughs) things that i'm not sure his gift changes i think the the first dirk gently book seems to me as good as the first two hitchhikers books and i entirely agree with john i think the first two books are kind of immortal i mean for me i think i'm a radio purist because that's where i first encountered the show but i think there is another point there which is i'm not sure it's his gift slacking off i think it's there's been so much of a shift towards visual culture, starting with the TV series of Hitchhikers, and then, as John's saying, the movie that eventually came out and the television adaptation of Dirk Gently and so on. And I'm just not sure his genius was as well fitted to the visual medium as it was to the, to the medium of radio drama and the novel. I think his genius is kind of a verbal genius. He's got an extraordinary command of words. And it doesn't surprise me in the least that he... Collaborated with John to produce a book as perfect as the meaning of lift. It's getting inside what words mean and how words mean. So a a joke which, because it has the form of a joke, kind of like a knight's move in chess, it leads you in a certain direction and then takes a suddenly unexpected but wonderful and hilarious diversion right at the end. That can be done very nicely on on the radio. You can say, oh, this this Zaphod character, oh, yeah, I know, I've met him before. Of course, he only had the two arms and the one head and called himself Phil. And that produces (laughs) this idea that he now has more than two arms and two heads. If you then do that as as part of a TV series, particularly if your budget is a bit constrained, as I believe the first BBC adaptation was, you end up with an actor walking around with a papier-mâché head on his shoulder, and that's just not as funny
0: well, it's a, it's a, this is another sore point, Adam, because I went to my boss at television that I'd migrated to and said there's this great sitcom on the radio, science fiction sitcom, it's very odd, and, and I told him about it. He said, well, let's commission a script. And then they wouldn't let me produce it because I was too junior and too cocky. And all these things you're saying about, I said, well, it doesn't say in the book how big Zaphod's head is. It could be <laughs> one on top of the other. It could be like a pimple or it could be under <laughs> his coat. But the guy they had as the producer, Alan Bell, didn't like hit science fiction and didn't really understand it and didn't really want to do the thing. And so they did it literally. And that's where they got stuck, rather than, you know, you need to seize the spirit of Hitchhiker and do it for the medium itself. And I think the same thing they tried to do with the movie. The beginning of the movie is it's all literally, you know, pictorializing the story that's in your head. And it seems a bit banal somehow. It was really disappointing, and I wasn't really even allowed in the studio. And it was, you know, they only did one series, and rightly because it didn't really, it didn't really work. It was a great loss, I think.
1: What's the sort of influence of it? Do you think? I mean, has it changed the way people see science fiction,
0: or affected the the way people write science fiction? Do you think? I think it's a bit like Monty Python, which is you can't do it better than that for what it is. And it's sort of like okay, they've it's come it's the apotheosis of the the genre and in the case of Hitchhiker there is only Hitchhiker. There's nothing you know, you can see in Python, the provenance of say Spike Milligan and the Q series and a, f- a few things, I don't really know where Hitchhiker comes from or where it went. It's, there isn't another one since, I don't think. You can't compare. What do you think, Adam?
2: No, I, I, you know, I do agree. In fact, I have a long and fairly tedious lecture I could deliver on this topic because I love. I mean, I love science fiction. I've, I write science fiction. I have read a history of science fiction, and I love comedy I love comedy when it's done as well as it's as it's done in Hitchhikers and it seems to me that both science fiction and comedy share something they they have a similar form I mean if I'm asked to define science fiction or what I'll sometimes say is it's not about having spaceships or lasers or time machines you may find all those things in a science fiction book or film but that's not what science fiction is what science fiction is at root is that moment when the ape-man throws the bone up into the sky, camera follows it up and it goes all the way up and then suddenly it turns into a, a spacecraft in orbit and it's kind of wonderful, it's, it's, it's marvellous it's a sense of wonder. And that form of taking you along a certain in a certain direction, following logically along and then suddenly transforming into something wonderful yeah. and marvellous oh, is yeah. the form of a, of a joke. There seems to me a kind of affinity between the two modes, which makes it all the more surprising that it's so rare to find truly brilliant science fiction comedy. I mean, there's, there's been some, I suppose. You know, Red Dwarf is quite well thought of. It's a bit hit and miss yeah. perhaps. I know Armando Iannucci's trying at the moment with his Avenue 5 show, which again is, it sort of sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And the thing about Hitchhikers, particularly the first two radio series, is it seems to me they they work all the time, every single line is a thing of wonder and marvel.
1: Is there a sense also in that a lot of comedy science fiction works by jokes about the genre and that Hitchhiker sort of works on jokes about the universe a bit more?
2: Yeah, there's something in that, isn't there? I mean, it, it, the danger with science fiction or with fantasy, and I say this from a position of, of love, and I say it as someone who writes the stuff, is that it is all made up. It's hard to care too much about you know the destruction of a planet in a distant solar system and what we care about is the stuff in our lives and i know that one of the things that douglas adams himself became very engaged with was the environmental degradation and what's happening to the planet and he was a you know he had a, a conscience about the real world and there's something about hitchhikers that that expresses that it's fundamentally a story about a group of slightly mismatched friends going through a, a series of increasingly surreal and bizarre experiences. That's true of life, I think.
0: I, I agree, Adam. I think that's very wise and neat, and I love that, the, the bone into the spaceship. I, I think that's absolutely right, that the form of a joke and the form of a great science fiction conceit are very similar. And that I think Douglas would always say... Well, Armando often says this about his work is that the thick of it, for example, is not about politics at all. It's about the BBC. That's really what it's about. And I went to see the death of Stalin during the whole Brexit thing. And I thought, that's Brexit. That is, it speaks to me about Brexit. It speaks that what's happened is a huge event has taken place and nobody knows what to do. And they're both frightened and confused and trying to save their own skins And I think that's what... There's something iconic about... I love everything Armando does, actually. I haven't seen Avenue 5 yet. But is somehow you... Why it speaks to us, Hitchhiker, is it fits who you are because it's about something other than what the story apparently is. It's not really about, you know, the paranoid android. and, And many people have noted that all the characters in Hitchhiker are actually part of Douglas... So Douglas was always something wrong with his back. He'd put it out, buttering a slice of bread once. So he's always moaning on about how, oh, I've gone, not feeling very well today. The guy in the bath, the captain of the b remember him? The guy who has been sent off. Not quite sure why we've been sent off to this far galaxy, but he spends all the time in the bath. And that was Douglas. I used to come home from BBC Radio and Douglas would have been in the bath for seven or eight hours with cups of tea on, you know. He used him, all of himself and put it into the book and I think when one person tells their own truth, it's universal because it was truth. It was, raw, you know, dragged out of him and somehow you can fit your own truth onto that because, you know, you know human experience ultimately is universal, isn't it? I mean, we all... We're all born and we're all struggling and then we all die.
2: I, mean, I think that is right. I also, I'm also, i sometimes struck that it's, it, uh, Salman Rushdie actually made the distinction, I don't know if in, entirely if it holds up, if I'm honest, but he made the distinction between what he saw as a kind of English or British comedic tradition and the American tradition. He said the American tradition in comedy is based on a kind of isn't it funny that premise, the sort of Friends or I Love Lucy sitcom idea whereas English comedy, Rushdie says, is based on a wouldn't-it-be-funny-if premise, which leads into that that Monty Python surrealism or the kinds of things that Douglas Adams is doing in The Hitchhikers or in his other books.
0: Yeah, do you know that line that Zaphod says, I'm just some guy, you know? He's the president of the universe or whatever he is, but he says, I'm just some guy. You know, I first met Salman in a car on the way to Nigel Rees's wedding in the country, and he was just some small guy who'd just written his first... What was his first novel called? That was a science fiction novel, Salman's first novel.
2: Salman Rushdie, was, uh, Grimus was his first novel. That's you're, right, Grimus, you're exactly.
0: Testing and me, and he was, you're testing me. He, 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 was a, you he was a shy, nervous sort of chap, terribly nice, and it's marvellous watching his career become stellar in this, you know, amazing... World revered and literary figure, and I knew him as the bloke in the back of the car who was just some guy. Mm. He's Isaiah And from that's Peeble the Box. thing. What I feel about Douglas is, it's like it's sort of funny. You know, having shared a flat with a guy, you know, who couldn't honestly couldn't make a sandwich without falling over something, become this, you know, legendary figure, and it's it's rather delicious actually. Do you, I mean your friendship continued
1: to the end of his life didn't yeah.
0: do you have a memory of when you last saw him he lived in in the states and so didn't see him very often but he'd always have this I mean because everything Douglas did was larger than life I mean he'd be you know off with Paul Allen in, on his yacht in Alaska and you know and talking about you know, he you know hung out with Steve Jobs or whatever but he'd always at the end of the day come back and want to go to the pub in Islington and you know be, be who he was that was a s- sweet thing about him and he, he did throw the best parties. I mean, that's, that's another sort of paradox for somebody who was often s- sunk in gloom and despair to throw the best parties ever. They were marvellous. I hope he's throwing a party somewhere.
1: We'll raise a pangalactic goggle blaster to him. <laughs> John Lloyd, Adam Roberts, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.